Hi, I'm Heather Reisman, and this is Well Said, a podcast on the art and science of living well. This podcast is brought to you by Indigo. Today, we're going to talk about the potential fragility of democracy and the fault lines emerging due to forces which have surfaced and gained strength over the last half a century. Globalization, the growing divide between the haves and the have-nots, the very significant impact of social media on our individual and shared perceptions of truth. To explore all this, we are joined today by an extraordinary guest, someone I have long wanted to host on this podcast. Timothy Snyder is the Richard C. Levin Professor of History at Yale and the author of 15 books which explore critical moments in history. His latest book, On Tyranny, written just after the 2016 U.S. election, takes 20 lessons from the 20th century and presents them as actions we can all take to strengthen democracy in the 21st century. On Tyranny was published as a stunning graphic novel, which I hope will be read by people of all ages. You know, the United States has always held itself to be this shining city on the hill, a kind of bastion of the very best of democratic ideals. But what's going on right now, frankly, it confuses and in fact worries many of us outside its borders. I'm hoping that in the time we have together, you can help us make sense of what we are seeing happen. Let me start with this question. In every way, Trump seemed like the least likely candidate to become president of the United States, let alone a man who could single-handedly reshape the fundamental values of the Republican Party. How do you, through your perspective as a historian, explain his victory? Number one, we have a very strange political system that goes back to the 18th century in which you can get fewer votes and still win. So we should remember that if the U.S. had a parliamentary system like Canada or like European countries, Mr. Trump would have lost the election because he did lose the popular vote. And he lost the second time by 7 million votes. Number two, I think we have to take into account that despite the many failings, the man does have talents. And the talents fit in in a way which should attract our attention and warn us about the century that we're living in. They fit in with social media. So the man worked very well with social media. He worked very well in an information environment or an emotional environment in which what counts is how you feel right now and what sets you off right now. And do you feel something right now? He was very good at that. He was much better than his Republican rivals. He was better than Hillary Clinton. And that's one of the reasons that that he won. And then a third reason has to do with the story of the US. He does embody a certain, in my view, perverted version of the American dream, which is that you can have no obvious source of income. You can leave behind you a trail that seems to be nothing but chaos and confusion and, and just waste and nevertheless succeed. Like that idea of an entitled winner, I think was very attractive to a lot of people who were confused because their own social mobility has been blocked. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people saw him as a kind of hero of a certain kind of American dream. Wow. You packed a lot into that answer. That's really instructive. Not the least of which is the potentially incendiary combination of unchecked social media so easily filled with untruths and citizens who are feeling fearful or angry about their perceived place in society. I've not heard a lot of discussion about the why, why Trump has been so successful. In your book on tyranny, one of the points you make is that democracy is weakened and tyrants come to power 
when citizens can be manipulated, when truth loses currency. So how do we recognize and combat the forces which are undermining truth? When you talk about the forces, the strongest force is social media itself, Facebook in particular, because the way that those algorithms work is by drawing attention and they draw attention by dosing you with stuff that you like or you feel comfortable with and occasionally interrupting that with something you're afraid of, something that makes you feel a little bit sick. And then you go back to feeling better again. And that's a very simple behaviorist algorithm. And it reduces us basically to the pigeons and the rats from the famous behaviorist experiments of the 1950s and 60s. It captures our attention, but it erodes away the parts of us, you know, which we so carefully try to cultivate in other settings like schools and bookstores and so on, which allow us to reflect and to see a situation from the outside and not just from the point of view of our own feelings. So it's a general trend that when you lose local news, you start moving towards authoritarianism. And I think we know some of the reasons for this. Like if local news gives people stuff that they have in common, you know, the school board, the city council, does the water have lead or not? Did the basketball team win last night? Also, local news makes reporters into real people. You may not like them, but you realize that's actually a person and it's not, it's not the media. And then when that's stripped away and people then just read Facebook the way they read newspapers with the same trust. And that means that suddenly, because Facebook doesn't report, the internet doesn't report, it only repeats, right? And, and so they're drawn into these national stories. Everything is national suddenly or ideological or fictional. So we have to find a way to build back local information. I think, you know, this is like the preoccupation for the Greeks forward, that democracy is fundamentally about local affairs. But if nobody knows anything about local affairs, then how can you really have democracy? And then the other thing is ethical. Like we've paved the way for this with the idea that nothing's really true. So once you make the move that nothing is really true and like everything begins with feelings, it's all about situations and so on, then what do you do with the people who say, well, I feel very strongly that Donald Trump won the election? What do you do with that? If everything's about feelings, you just have to say, okay, I respect your feelings, right? I think we have to move the ethics a little bit. And this is why I wrote the book in this straightforward way. And what's different about the book, one reason why it's so concise is that I'm assuming that values are real. I'm assuming that values are part of life and I'm going to articulate some values here and I'm going to do it as clearly as I can. And truth is a value, right? The machines don't care about truth. The universe doesn't care about truth. Truth is a human value, something towards which we we strive. And if we give up on that or if we're cynical and we're like, oh, what is truth? Then that has big political effects. So you're saying we become vulnerable to tyranny when we stop distinguishing between what we want to hear and what is actually true, what the reality is. I was particularly taken with your chapter, which starts with Be Kind to Language, in which you implore us to read, to read deeply, to read long form. And to take the time to dig into areas because it's essential to our ability to distinguish between fact and fiction. But everything about Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, in fact, the many internet platforms, they're designed to grab our attention with ever shorter forms of addictive entertainment. It appears to be lessening our ability to concentrate. In fact, in our business, we're endlessly hearing from people that they wish they had more time to read, they love to read, but they can't find time to read. And when we dig in and we ask them, most will admit they're spending huge amount of time, like hours on social media every day. And so in addition to the lack of truth that seems to be supported by these platforms, it feels like they are dumbing us down, taking our attention. Do you have any perspective on that? New technologies like this are always very disruptive. So I'm looking at your background and you're looking at my background and we each have hundreds of books. 
monks. Yeah. But in the 15th and 16th and 17th centuries, books were a very disruptive technology. The notion of authorship hadn't been established. The notion of copyright hadn't been established. The thing that we call plagiarism was the norm. And books stirred people up to you know, religious wars in the part of the world that presumably your ancestors of mine came from, or the population in Europe gets killed because of books, I mean, in a short version. And so I try to keep that in mind when I think about the internet, that right now it's a total mess and it is bestializing us. You know, so we, when, when I was a kid, I, you know, the idea in the, science, the optimistic science fiction was person plus machine is God. But what we've learned is that at least the machines we have, it's person plus machine is beast. These, these things are bestializing us most of the time. But that doesn't mean they have to, right? We can't afford another 150 years of religious war, but we can tame this thing. And we have to see it as a project. We have to see the internet not as like a given. It's not a force of nature. It doesn't have to be the way that it is. It can be much better. And of course, if you travel internationally, you see this. The internet in Canada is different than the internet in the US. And the internet in Europe is mm -hmm. different than the internet in, in North America. And we can keep moving in that direction. So yeah, what I feel as a teacher is I feel another presence in the room. So I banned technology in my classrooms in 2006 when it was still a fairly unusual thing to do. And the propaganda point I make to my students is the average grade in my classes went up by six points. And for a Yale student, that's a difference between, you know, a B and an A minus, which is like, those are the only two grades we give anyway. So um, that was a joke, everybody out there, I was joking, but like six points is significant. And, but more importantly, it changed the atmosphere because when people didn't hear each other clicking and weren't distracted by each other's screens, then they were suddenly all in one place, learning more or less the same thing. And then they liked my classes a lot more, not because I was teaching better, but because somehow we were all in it together. So I call it the fanatic. I think of social media as the fanatic. I mean, the fanatic is this thing which has limitless attention and which, as you say, plays on our worst sides and moves us in certain directions without us realizing it and literally rewires our brains. Mm -hmm. I feel the presence of that. And then when I remove that, I then again feel the presence of my students. So you see why like universities are built like monasteries and you see why monasteries had walls. Like people were trying to concentrate, you know, yeah. and yeah. In universities were trying to concentrate. We have to do what's necessary to make that happen. So if you could wave a wand and with your deep perspective as a historian, very much committed to diminishing the risks of tyranny and enriching the best ideals of democracy, give us like two or three of the most important things we can do as people, as citizens to sustain democracy. Well, I don't have to wave a wand. I mean, I do that stuff. And that's the point of the book is that we can all do that stuff. Like the risk when we talk about like democracy and it falling is it then can seem like a big problem that nobody can do anything about. Mm -hmm. So I like the way you phrase your question because you know, democracy means ruled by the people. And so that means you have to be a person. You have to see yourself as a person. You have to see other people as part of the people. And you have to recognize as you know, Democrats have done since the ancients, they've recognized that Democracy begins at home, it begins with neighborhoods, it begins with communities, it begins with people who actually interact, which is why one of the lessons in the book, and actually the one which I think has received the most attention, interestingly, is the one about making eye contact and small talk, one which people are most struck by, because I think, okay, wait, why? But that seems deeply right. But so, I mean, little tiny things, try to make sure you're not predictable, because the world is trying to make you predictable. And being an individual and being free depends upon being unpredictable. So if the powers that be can predict you, and if social media can predict you, 
you're not free. So think about being unpredictable yourself, not in the dumb way, like don't jump out the window, but think, do I have the same views that everybody in my demographic has? Do I fear the same things that, are, is that maybe there's something wrong with the fact that I have the same fears that everybody that like, if I'm a middle-aged white guy, do I have the same fears that other middle-aged white guys have? Hmm, maybe something's gone wrong. A second thing that anyone can do is pay for knowledge. Like we pay for plumbers, you know, we pay for auto mechanics, we pay for a lot of stuff, you know, we pay for coffee, right? With the price of a couple of fancy coffees, we can subscribe to a newspaper and that keeps it going. That keeps the whole thing going, you know, and, and buying books, right. keeping the whole thing going. And so in taking part in that, subscribing to a newspaper, buying a book, voting for the tax increase for your library, you're, you're doing something which is very significant. I guess the third thing that I would say is remembering that everybody else is a person. You can't convince people all the time. Like part of our attention span collapse is that like even people who are good people and righteous people and care about democracy, we have this idea that like, I'm going to talk to that person. They're going to change. No, they're not going to change their mind. That's not even the point. The point is if you have a conversation with someone, they're going to remember that you're a person Mm -hmm. probably. You're going to remember that they're a person. And then maybe at some later point, things might line up differently. But once we forget that we're people and we get polarized into tribes, then the whole thing isn't going to work. Your lessons really are powerful. Look, we only have a couple of minutes left, and I'm just curious, what seduced you to become a historian? I had this very traditional or you know, even conservative idea that history was the best preparation for government service. So my idea was that I was going to take an advanced degree in history and then become a public servant. That was my plan. I thought having the perspective of the past, learning the languages, living in other countries for a little bit, that's the right way to prepare myself for government services, which is what I thought I was doing. Mm -hmm. Then once I did the degree, as I was doing the doctorate, I was, to use your word, seduced by the surprises. I mean, history is messy and surprising and interesting and full of all kinds of things that are forgotten, full of all kinds of things that happened that we don't know, and full, full of all kinds of things that were envisioned that are also part of the story. Like everything that people thought could happen is also part of history, right? So history is like this luxurious leverage that we have on the past. We can at least get a few things straight. And then the way it comes into the present is that if we can at least get some things straight about the past, that gives us some judgment, right? It gives us some sense of what didn't happen. Isaiah Berlin liked to quote this 18th century historian of England called Louis Namier about this. Like history doesn't tell you what happened, but it does tell you what didn't happen. <laughs> it gives you a sense of what isn't happening, what's not going to happen. It gives you a sense of when people are lying, for example, about what's just not plausible. And so our last question today, given your deep understanding, and in particular, your understanding of the last century, and looking at current trends, current reality, are you on balance optimistic about the future of democracy? Going back to history, history shows us that the things that happen are largely not the things that anyone expects are going to happen for worse or for better. What I am is I'm a believer in our ability to unpredictably solve things. 20 years from now, if we don't get some things right, we're going to be facing extinction, like not right 20 years, but the next couple of generations because of global warming. We're going to need a few people to behave really wisely and unpredictably to not just to solve that, but, but in solving that, to open up the future and make the whole future seem something like it's more full of hope than it is now. I'm deeply grateful for the time, really. And I thank you. I thank you so much. Thank you for preparing for this. Thanks for the conversation. Thank you for tuning into our conversation with Dr. Timothy Snyder. 
For more ideas to help you live well, including the book featured in this episode on tyranny, visit indigo.ca slash podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts and you can follow us wherever you listen. Thank you all for joining us over the last 10 months as we've explored the art and science of living well with some of our favorite authors, including Sanjay Gupta, Ariana Huffington, Adam Grant, Thomas King, Rupi Carr, Lisa Genova, Jay Shetty, and many others. We are taking a short hiatus and we'll be back with season two early next year. Keep an eye on your feeds for launch date. Well Said was produced for Indigo Inc. by Vocal Fry Studios and is hosted by me, Heather Reisman.